back to another episode of Say Your Story. I'm Dean Stevens. Thanks so much for checking us out uh, on this day, whatever day it may be. Uh, today we are talking to a, a gentleman uh, who I've got to know uh, very well through um, this nonprofit space that I've been um, honored to run for the last 15 or 16 months. Uh, we are an open office space for nonprofits, if you will. And um, Jesse Blom and uh, his crew with the Greenheart Project. Um, they have had an opportunity to work out of here as well um, while they are getting their hands dirty out in our communities, creating some amazing gardens. You know, but the thing I noticed about Jesse um, is his willingness to work with some of our younger executive directors here uh, at the Ripple Fund. And uh, I watched him one day and he spent, I don't know, hour, hour and a half um, with a young lady who was kind of on her journey to create this nonprofit and did it because of what happens in our space. And he understands that collaborative process. He understands what leadership look like, looks like. And that's exactly what he did that day. And um, to be able to sit back and, and watch him work and watch him impact our community, uh, it was just a no-brainer. When I asked him, I said, hey, do you want to say your story? And he said, yeah, absolutely. What time you need me there? So uh, without further ado, let me introduce you to Jesse Blom with the Greenheart Project. This is your second, your second podcast? Second podcast ever. Were you nervous on the first one? Yes. Were you really? Yes, because it's a new medium for me. I, I don't mind speaking... And I, I don't mind speaking individually to people. I don't mind speaking in front of a public audience. Yeah. But yeah, the headphones and the microphone throws me off a little bit. <laughs> well, we'll just pretend it's not there. Yeah. You know, the cool thing about um, why I love doing this is that a lot of times you're halfway through and you're like, man, this is a really cool conversation. Mm-hmm. You know, there's no, there's no Q&A. I got, do I have any, I have no questions in front of me. Right. Right. It's not like a test at school. Which, you know, gave me anxiety all the time. So, uh, anyway, it's, it's pretty cool. You know, I, I think, let's jump, let's jump here first. Um, the Greenheart Project, what it, what it means to this community and, and how many gardens you guys have. Because it started in, what, in 09 with one garden. That's correct. Right? And where are you now? We have 18 school partners around Charleston. And what that means is each school partnership, we work with that school to manage their garden space and to engage the students in learning in that garden. And it all started with one. And that one garden is Mitchell Elementary School in downtown Charleston. That's where the magic started. And it was a volunteer operation. So it was neighbors who wanted to come together and provide some sort of value to the school. And the school principal was very open to the idea. And uh, and that's how it all started. You want me to keep telling the story? Yeah, yeah, because I think it's cool. I mean, that, I mean, you're talking 14 years later. You're basically adding a garden a year. Yeah, I guess if you average it out, that's right. It's coming fits and <laughs> it's coming fits and starts. Yeah, but yeah, it averages a garden a year. That's pretty good. So that the ripple of those gardens. What does it mean for the communities? What have you seen? Yeah, well, I'll tell you what. You know, when it's working really well, it has a really big impact. And by working well, I mean. Um, you know, if we can align what our nonprofit does and the value that we provide with the school with the right people, with the right interests in the school environment who really lean into it and connect their school community with it, we can, the garden, it, it, it extends a lot further than just the garden outside the school. We get into the cafeteria and the food makes its way around to all of the different students. We 
give the students produce from the garden to bring home to the parents and the parents get to enjoy the product. Uh, we get different classes from the school to come out and do what we call in-school field trips out to the garden, different subject areas connecting with it. So it can be really, um, it, can, it can generate a lot of buzz in that school community and then back home with the kids as well. Those are our favorite stories when the parents or the grandparents tell us about what they ate for dinner last night, which was inspired by what the student had been doing in the garden. And there's a sense of pride there. Absolutely. I'm glad you pointed that out because a lot of folks, when they look at what we do, they see the food and they think the food is the end goal. Mm -hmm. The food's not the end goal. The food is the way to generate a sense of ownership, pride, accomplishment, and self-confidence in the students who grew that food and are learning how to prepare it and eat it. And so that that's the end goal. The end goal is that uh, there are so many different ways to describe it, but if you can think about something that you've engaged in in your life that um, you find meaningful and you've been able to start and work on and finish to completion, if you can imagine something like that in your life and the sense of accomplishment that you feel, that's the sort of thing that we're seeking to accomplish with our students in the garden. And you see a great need for that in today's, oh in my what's going goodness. on. Yeah. Truly? Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, okay, so, um, all right. So even in my time during school, I have no idea what your school experience was like growing up, but in my time during school, the opportunities we had for hands-on project work were pretty few and far mm -hmm. between. I mean, we were dissecting something or another in science class, and, you know, maybe you put together a bridge, you know, for your engineering class with two picks or that sort of thing. Right. But uh, those were kind of few and far between. And I think these days um, – that even extends into the home environment, you know. And I, I got three kids at home. You know, they spend more time on screens than, than uh, I, I think any of us really want. Yes. I, you and I probably spend more time on screens than either, either of us really want. I guess what I'm getting at is the opportunities for actually doing things outdoors with our hands, mm -hmm. you know, grabbing things, making things, and watching things grow are, are I think, getting fewer and so uh, having this sort of learning opportunity, I think is really different, you know, and in terms of if it's needed, absolutely. I think that the bonds that we build with one another when we're doing things that are hands-on and project-based are super valuable, mm -hmm. you know, and and like I said, that feeling of, of accomplishment. And I'm sure you've also been following the, the like teaching to the test mm -hmm. idea in our yep. schools. Yep, yep. And, you know, there's no state standard on gardening, so you, we're not <laughs> teaching to the test there. You know, we're, we're trying to imbue life values and life skills through the activity, and I think it's really refreshing for teachers and students and parents. The majority of kids that, that get involved with these gardens, right? I think, I mean, you tell me, what percentage are like, oh, my gosh, like day one, I can't wait to get into the garden. Yeah, that's a, that's a really good question. Okay. The funny thing is, and I'll get to the numbers, but the funny thing is, it's often the kids who are most into the gardening are the kids that the teacher, if you were to ask them the day before they came out to the garden, who are the toughest kids in the class oh, to engage? Right. Those kids are often the kids who are most into the gardening because it is outside of the box. Mm -hmm. It is, you know, something that they are able to sort of move around and control on their own. Uh, there's a little more leeway, let's say, in freedom out in the garden area. So... There is inevitably, so let's say our typical class, 
these days it's pretty big, 27, 30 kids in a class. Let's break it down into small groups because that's what we always do in the garden. So we right. have the large group and then we break into the small groups and work in the garden. Let's say I have a small group of eight. I'm, I'm going to have at least one, maybe two kids who are rearing to go, who are going to be digging up the dirt. Um, they're going to be trying to grab the tool before you ask them to grab the tool. They are really ready to go. You got three or four who stand around, you know, sort of waiting to be told what to do. And then you got one or two who say, ew, I'm never going to touch that <laughs> dirt in my life. You There's know? a worm in and, it. <laughs> and that's, that's the whole fun of it is trying to take all those different uh, sort of initial reactions at the start. And then our most successful programs, they run, we engage the same kids every week throughout a whole school semester. So the job that our educators have, which is not an easy one, is to get all these kids working on the same page um, and you know accomplishing something together over the course of the semester. But w what you see inevitably is if you in, if you talk to any one of those students after they have completed a semester of programming, they're going to tell you uh, what you can plant in the garden. They're going to tell you how it's grown. Um, you know, if you were to ask them how to plant the seed, they could give you detailed instructions on it. Uh, they can identify the type of crops that are growing. They can. They know how to pick the crops. They know how to cook it. So it's it's like, they go from zero to sixty, I guess, in the gardening world, pretty and quickly. And how many um, will come back to volunteer? That's a great question. Okay, so I, I don't know how many, but I will tell you that uh, we've got a high school program now, and I think you know that we yep. we started hiring high school students to work as interns with us a few years ago, and so. Historically, we work with elementary schools, so right. uh, preschool through fifth grade. And then just three years ago, we started this high school program. One of the first applicants to our high school program, what, he had just finished ninth grade, and he started with us when he was in third grade at Mitchell Elementary School. And so it's six years later, and he was literally the poster child of the Greenheart Project when he was in elementary school. If you look at our photography, he, he, he dated back further in our program than any of our employees had. So we knew him from the poster. And when he showed up to the interview <laughs> and he said, that's me on the poster, <laughs> it blew our minds. So anyway, uh, his name's Aaron. And Aaron is one example. And we've had a handful. So we've had a total of 24 high school kids that have come through our internship program. We've had, I want to say, at least four that I'm aware of that engage with our programs as elementary school students. The way that the timeline is working out is you know back in say 2009 10 11 12 we were working with you know 30 50 students total at Mitchell Elementary School right. these days we're working with 4,000 students across all of the school partners that we have so I think as we move down the road we're going to see a lot more of the elementary school students that we were working with who come back whether they're working as interns or volunteers with us. So I think it's to be seen, you know, how many are going to end up coming back. When you go back and look um, at your life and how you got to where you are today and why you are exactly where your feet are, um, I'm sure that there was somebody or something or a program that influenced you. Because when you talk about somebody like Garen, right, this is an experience he'll never forget. This is an experience that probably has shaped him and as a father of three, and as a father of three, I just pointed at him and then pointed at me, right? I, and I just told somebody this yesterday. I want a responsible, caring adult 
to help lead my kids, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Because at some point in time, dad doesn't know anything, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm so when you there. look back at your life, where, wh- who was that and what was that? That's a really good question, Dean. I think it wasn't until I was an adult. So w- when I think about specifically like gardening and farming as a activity that has really, you know, gotten me going and inspired me on a career path. It wasn't until I was an adult that I really mm. sort of found inspiration in this area. And I'll tell you why. My mom grew up on a tobacco farm in eastern North Carolina, and it was hard. It was really hard for them to make a living. Uh, they had to sell their property, you know, uh, back in the 80s. And she was raised to n- not farm, kind of like you better not do this because mm-hmm. it's really hard. Mm-hmm. It's just interesting, you know, I mean, different families, different stories everywhere. But in my family, it was, you know, you should stay away from this. And that was the message I got growing up. So I never had the opportunity to really do any of these things. When I got to be an, a, a, a young adult, I kind of, my, my, my grandfather, who was the tobacco farmer, he passed away. I was probably eight years old. But I started thinking back and also looking back and learning more about his experience as a farmer and, and my mom's experiences on her family farm. And I, I kind of, um, what do you call when you like, you know, think about it in hindsight, and it sounds really nice. You know, mm-hmm. there's a word for that. It's like a, a you know, a, a fa- I was just fascinated by this idea of growing up on a family farm. And then as I progressed, so I, I worked in education. I worked in outdoor education, and I ended up visiting a, a, a farm university in Costa Rica with a group of high school kids from the U.S., all right? We were doing international programs. Love this. And this farm university, it's called Earth University, brought together kids from around the world, around the tropics, from Africa, Asia, the Caribbean, Latin America. And they would learn for four years how to farm. Not only did they learn how to farm, but they learned how to build a community around farming, and they learned economic development practices, so how to start a business and run a business that's based on food or farming. And these kids really lit up when they come, and they had the opportunity to do this for four years. And they were some of the most inspirational humans that I had ever met. So those students at that university were my first people who I met, who I saw, and I said, you know, this is, this is an example of how I can take this sort of, you know, fascination I have with farming and look at it, tie it into education to my career path. And I started, I had this sort of spark, this uh, inspiration. How do I create this educational learning environment um, around farming that I can do back home, right? So it was just kind of a spark. I get back home and I start discovering one by one all of these individuals in my hometown in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, who are doing this. They have already started their own gardens, their own farms, do practicing urban farming and bringing kids and providing educational programs. And so it was one by one. I'd visit, I'd show up at a farm, I'd do some volunteering, I'd start talking to people, and I found my niche. I found the people who I, you know, sort of resonated with and engaged with. And you were still in college then? No, th- I was a young adult. You know, I was working professional, and I was spending. You know, <laughs> I was a young adult still in college. Okay, so. yeah, yeah, no, no. I, I was I was out of college. I was I was working as a professional. I go after work hours. I go on the weekends to wow. these places, and I'd start you know finding the people who I really resonated with, and then sooner or later, I found myself working full time for an urban farm program in Milwaukee, running a, a education farm program. So it was it was a whole series of events that sort of, you know, goes back to my 
ancestry and follows all the way through, you know, following some nuggets of inspiration along the way. But there, there were many different touch points. And just circling it way back to your question, Dean, about, you know, what I hope that our kids in our Green Heart programs right. experience, I want them to have many, many multiple opportunities to connect with adults working in this arena and working in this field. And so that's why I love bringing volunteers in and they get to, you know, meet all these different people from different backgrounds and learn about what they do. And I want them to go in whatever direction they're inspired to go. Getting back to Aaron, he just completed welding school. And so now he's going to become a welder. So, you know, I, I, I don't expect that most of our interns are going to be farmers. Right. Right. But I do expect them to find people along the way in their farming practice, the Green Heart Project, that inspire, inspire them to do uh, amazing things. You know, though, you know, when you bring those volunteers in, right, and you show them that you care and that you're going to show them this process and you're also going to hold them accountable, mm-hmm. right? That's what leads a kid like Aaron to find something. Because, again, you, you go through these various stages of parenthood mm-hmm. and you finally get to a place where you're like, I just want my kid to be happy, right? right? And I want him to be able to find something that really stirs his passion, mm-hmm. you know, and that, mm-hmm. and that kid found Aaron found welding for whatever reason, but he also had that foundation laid that this is the way you go about to be successful. That's right. And, and what we try to do as an organization, I think we've done successfully is, you know, create a, a type of family environment where you're, mm. you're always welcome back, you know? Uh, and so a lot of these uh, interns who work with us, they'll come and they'll pop in, to the office come say hello and just check in you know we do a weekly market they'll show up at the market and say hello and they might even run the cash register for a minute <laughs> um we do try to create that environment that they can always come back to keep telling their stories and you know give us updates on where they're headed so that's really the type of environment we're trying to build tell everybody a little bit about about the instant um the project there um because when i was out there i mean i was just i was moved by again and you talked about the market you know you People may not know that the citizens of and the people who live there, you know, they have access to the gardens. The kids have access to the gardens as well as students. Yeah, this this farm project has been a blast. Um, most of our projects are school gardens. This is a community farm. So what that means is it's in a residential community. Um, about half of the residents, it's an affordable housing uh, residential community run by the housing authority. About half of the residents are seniors. So it has designated senior housing, it has designated uh, disability housing, and then it has designated workforce housing. It's a really diverse community. Um, And so this farm is right in the middle. And so it's a school garden because the schools on the block come there to use as their school garden. It's a community garden. People who live in that facility can adopt a garden plot. And it's a production farm that produces food for sale. And the customers the primary customers are the residents who live there so it's kind of it's created this sort of you know village type environment where we're producing food for that particular community everybody's invited to come to the market we get people who don't live there that come there as well and i invite anybody to come what day is that so Thurs- i don't forget to ask thursdays uh 3 30 to 7 we're there and we're selling our own fruits and vegetables we bring in other fruits and vegetables and you know make sure we've got a variety of stuff it's pay what you can you know one of the one of the uh, interesting and challenging parts about being in the neighborhood we are is it is very rapidly, it's in late stage gentrification. Right. So you've got, you know, folks who live in an affordable housing community who are, you know, of either, you know, low to moderate means. And then you've got a neighborhood that's 
slowly but surely or sometimes quickly pricing them out. Yeah. So we do a pay what you can, you know, so payments really not required, but most people do opt to pay uh, what they can for their fruits and vegetables. So everybody's welcome. We love getting new customers at the market. I mean, if you go to the grocery yeah. store, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. I mean, a year ago I was paying a buck 99 for a for a bunch of celery. Now it's like two ninety nine, and the bunch of celery is about the size of it. It's like a toothpick. I'm like, this is not going to work. It's gone through the roof, you know. And and I think the 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 challenge of providing healthy food at affordable prices is a really really big and serious challenge for our country. And you know, I don't I don't think that our farm is going to solve all of the problems out there. But it is important for us to make sure that our food is accessible to people, and so we'll continue to do that. Yeah, because a lot of times they don't. I mean, there are food deserts out there right. where they don't have access to fresh fruit and fresh vegetables. But downtown, you can get it. You walk right there for those neighbors. Exactly right. Every neighborhood deserves a pay what you can fruit and vegetable stand. I'll just no, say I like that it. flat out. No, I think I think that's perfect. Um, you know, the other thing I love to do when when I got um, folks to come in here because I'm a big fan of leadership. Right. Uh, I think there's born leaders. I think there's leaders who can be taught. And and again, I think that is where, especially when you're dealing with kids and that's what they need to see. You know, I, I, would, I would just love to ask you, like your philosophy on leadership, where it came from and how it's developed. So I had the great privilege of being trained on leadership at an early age. So and I got this from a YM excuse me, a YMCA camp that I attended nice. as a young person in Wisconsin. And this YMCA camp had a leadership program and it had a, a, a special curriculum that was developed called, uh, based on what they called collaborative leadership theory. So from a young age, I was learning, you know, the very basic principles of what it means to be a collaborative leader, which is, it's, it's different than I think what you read about in your textbooks, and, mm-hmm. you know, maybe even what you're learning in business school about leadership is really based on, you know, uh, especially among small groups, um, having a sense of shared ownership over a team and the idea that, um, you know, anybody truly can demonstrate leadership at different times in different moments. Um, in groups and we talk a lot about the responsibilities we have to one another as team members and demonstrating leadership towards one another so that's sort of my foundational you know background of leadership uh, theory and practices collaborative leadership working with others as I have grown into um, nonprofit uh, you know organizations and started learning how they operate I'm finding a, a lot of the gaps in that theory because not everybody wants to collaborate all the time nor is it necessarily appropriate for everybody to collaborate all the time sometimes you know we do need um you know let's say an individual to make a decision that's going to be a tough decision that um you know hopefully takes into account what others you know are are wanting and thinking but i guess what i'm learning is i'm continuously learning new leadership practice and theories as i go um, I love like hearing people talk about leadership. I gain little nuggets from, you know, whoever I can talk to about leadership. And what I'm, I, I think what I'm learning more than anything these days is um, s- sort of anecdotal stories from people mm. who have faced challenging um, situations as leaders and just hearing folks talk about, you know, particular instances or decisions that they had to face and then the stories that go behind them and then trying to, 
take whatever lessons I can from from those stories. You know, and then I'm trying to do that with others, tell my stories too, so other people can learn from what I yeah. experience. I share all the time when I was working at Channel Four and I was the weekend sports anchor. So there was a sports director, right? I knew all the right answers. I knew all the wrong moves. I knew which games we should cover and which games we shouldn't cover, right? Mm -hmm. And then when I was promoted to sports director and I sat in that chair for the first time and I had two guys working, you know, on the team, and I sat there and I thought, holy crap, I have no idea what to do now, (laughs) right? But my first move was to turn around and look at these two guys and go, what should we do today? Right? Right? And all of a sudden, that collaboration kicked in, right? you know, and then 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 that – and that became that lesson in, you know, how do you create ownership right. for your team members? Right. And, and that's where it all is. Because if they feel like, and they do own a part of the decision-making and the end product, right, right they're, they're, they're bought in. They're all in. Mm-hmm. You know, and you're going to say, hey, I need you at the guard for 12 hours today, but I'm going to give you a break tomorrow. You can come in and work two or three hours. That's it. Yeah. That's definitely the goal. That's definitely the goal is to build a, a sense of shared ownership. And, and so that if, if, if somebody feels they have ownership, then they'll take initiative. And, and then for me as a leader, it's about, you know, giving them enough space and s- stepping away for long enough and being patient for long enough for, for those folks to take their own initiative and make their own calls and trust in their judgment. And, you know, and that's one of the really key things I'm learning and continue to learn about leadership is it all hinges on trust. We've got to trust each other. You know, no matter how challenging it is. And you got to listen. That's the one. That's the big one, too. Yeah. I think there's like a one A, one B that is right up there. Just yeah. listen. Yeah. Just listen. Yeah. That's it. Yeah. Um, you've got your harvest slash event coming up. Yes, it's the harvest dinner. It's, it's the, the harvest it's, it's annual dinner. harvest dinner. It's a festival type environment. I came uh, uh, the last couple of years. So awesome. Yeah. It's an amazing event. So it's May 18th, Thursday, May 18th. This is our 13th annual Harvest Dinner. So we've been running this uh, celebratory dinner every year since we started the program. Um, it is a celebration of our students and, and their families and what they have accomplished in their school gardens this year. So we get student and family representatives from all of our different partner schools around the Charleston area. We gather at Mitchell Elementary School at 2 Perry Street. It'll be 5 to 8 p.m. Thursday, May 18th. Everybody's invited. We got $20 tickets. They're on our website. Find them on our social media. Um, it's our chance to show off to the world what, what we're doing with the with the Green Heart Project. And what about volunteers for the summer? If you got a if I got a kid that wants to come out and help well, out. You know what's interesting is summertime we, we dialed back our volunteer opportunities because mm. of the summer employment we offer to students. So we gotcha. So I don't know when this was going to air, but we've got a Friday deadline for high school students to apply to our internship program this summer. That's Friday, April 7th. So whether or not that's going to be available to folks. That being said, uh, we take volunteers multiple times per week. So that's all on our website, too. So we got we take volunteers to harvest our produce on Thursday mornings to work in the farm on Thursday evenings. And once in a while, we'll do a Saturday thing. So find volunteer opportunities on the calendar on our website. And that's the greenheartproject.org? It is greenheartsc.org. There you go. Google the Green Heart Project. You'll find us. Very good. Yeah. I appreciate your time. I know you're busy today. Thank you, Dean. Happy to be here. All right, Jesse, thanks so much. Uh, if you are interested in what we are doing here uh, at Ripple, or if you know someone needs to use a little bit of space out there, you can just email me at ripple.deanstevens, that's with a P-H, 
at gmail.com. And again, thanks to uh, Jesse and for all of our nonprofits that work here out of Ripple, and also to Jerry Shear, the man who uh, had the vision and makes it all happen each and every day uh, for us to be able to help them spread their word out in our community. Also, a big thanks to Bullets Benign, local band here in the Charleston area. You can catch them on Facebook. They uh, play a lot in and around town. So uh, give them a follow and give them a holler and go catch out the, their vibe. We really appreciate them uh, allowing us the opportunity to use their music. And again, thanks to you for checking in to say your story. I'm Dean Stevens. May your days be filled with peace and may your nights be filled with quiet. Because I'm finding my way back to you. Hey, yeah.